The Guardian. and this is the Guardian's Bike Podcast coming to you from the very noisy start line of the final stage of the Tour of Britain. On today's show, Paul McKinnis will be tempering his bike rage. We talk to Andrew Ritchie, founder and designer of the iconic Brompton bike. And Chris Hoy will be telling us how the new Olympic rules may jeopardise Britain's medal hopes at London 2012. First though, why is it that the only time we seem to see women on the podium at a bike race is as the eye candy? That was a question I posed recently after hearing that the Tour of Britain, a humble version of the Gallic road race, was looking to hire so-called presentation hostesses, aka podium girls, to kiss the cheeks of the winning riders on each stage. I suggested it was a little bit odd, if not insulting, that this archaic tradition was alive and well and question why any right-thinking woman would want to take part. To find out more, I've come down to Newham in East London for the final stage of the race to speak to the podium girls and ask them why on earth they do it. Five, four, three, two, one, go! The start of the final stage of the Tour of Britain in 2010 here in Newham. Come on, let's hear some nice Langford and I'm 25 and on the tour I have now been a podium girl for this week. <laughs> Can I ask you why you decided to be a podium girl? What was the attraction? Um, I just thought it would be a great way to see the behind the scenes of what goes on and do something totally different from my everyday life I guess. <laughs> and what would you say to people who would suggest it's an old-fashioned tradition that should have gone out with you know the idea that women should be at home in the kitchen? I mean I think some traditions are good fun and I think they are worth keeping up and and it kind of makes it more of a more of a ceremony and sort of a spectacle at the end if you're doing the prize givings and things I, I think it's great fun and and if people are choosing to do it and they're happy to do it and obviously not being forced into it or, or being made to feel cheap or humiliated or, or degraded if you're surrounded by a great supportive team then I think it's a fantastic thing there's a lot of women who are used sort of to publicize things and promote events and things like that as well so it's kind of uh, not old-fashioned in a way, they're still using it now. So. Okay, so I'm here with Peter Hodges who is a spokesman for the Tour of Britain. Hello. Hiya. So this year's tour, they're going to be podium girls. Why? We've had uh, presentation hostesses every year since the Tour of Britain was relaunched in 2004. And if you look at the vast majority of other races in Europe and around the world indeed, um, certainly male races, they have uh, female presentation hostesses. So it's almost a sort of cycling tradition, if you like. The women on your team, do they feel comfortable with having women on the podium as kind of eye candy? Yeah, I'd say, um, uh, I know we've got several members of the team in our office who uh, have actually express support uh, in terms of us and uh, cast doubt on uh, your original article in The Guardian, if I may say so. All the people that are involved in the race, nobody sort of says, oh, this is disgusting, you shouldn't do it. I think that having a podium girl is something quite special for the riders, all the riders love it. It's uh, in no way, shape or form in my eyes sort of derogatory to women. It's, it's good fun and the riders really enjoy it after a hard day of riding. I think it's just a nice way to soften the atmosphere really. It's just 
yeah, I think it's fine. Were you ever on the podium as a winner? And who kissed you? No, unfortunately, in the kind of racing I did, this, the presentations are just done by members of the club or local members of the organisation, so we don't have any kisses. It's just a shake of the hand and giving you a prize. So. so the race is over. Andre Greipel from Team HTC Columbia was the victor. I've just come backstage. I'm standing at the, behind the podium with the three presentation hostesses, Akima, Anna and Lauren. Hello, ladies. So this is your big moment. What have you got to do? What's, what are your tasks next? Uh, basically, we've got to introduce and bring on the dignitaries who are going to be helping us present the awards and the prizes and the jerseys. Just got to basically make sure everyone's framed nicely, ready for the press pictures, and do various other things, help them put on the jerseys. What about, what about the kiss? Has the sort of sweat dried on their cheeks by this point? It doesn't sound like a pleasant task. Luckily, most of them have been wiped down just before they come on and sometimes give a bit of a squirt of a nice smell. So um, we're all right. Right, I'll leave you to get ready for the big moment. One more little uh, pleasurable task to perform, and that is of course the spraying of the champagne. And this is where the peloton of photographers make a rapid exit. Okay boys. So I've just spotted Anna, one of the podium girls, who looks to be a little bit sticky and wet. The boys have sprayed you with champagne, I see. Yes, they have indeed. Well, we um, told them during the whole rest of the week that they weren't allowed to. They had to spray it out front. Um, and today, because it was the last day, obviously they knew they could get away with it. So three of them all at the same time. But um, it's great because it means it's, you know, proper celebration and, and finishes on a high. But no, very much. I enjoyed it. <laughs> see you, girls. That's it for this year's tour of Britain. The team buses are being driven away, marquees being taken down, and the podium girls can pack away their figure-hugging dresses for another year and go back to the day jobs. I came here this morning feeling pretty uncomfortable, the idea of women being used basically just for a photo opportunity. And I come away... Mm, in the same frame of mind really. Yes, Anna and Akima and Lauren, they enjoy their job and they say they don't feel exploited. It just seems so weird to me that in 2010, in Britain, the best women cyclists in the world, the only real opportunity for women to get onto ITV4's cycling coverage is to be kissing the blokes on the podium. Are things gonna change? Probably not. Yeah, so maybe in the women's races next year, there will be hunky men on the podium kissing the women who win the races. Is that progress? I'm not sure. You're listening to The Guardian's Bike Podcast. Now, as the red mist of bike rage descends upon him, here's Paul McInnes. The thing about cycling is it was conceived as quite a gentle therapeutic practice conducted in and around village greens, perhaps on a bizarre penny-farthing contraption that wouldn't allow you to go faster than 10 miles per hour, even if you wanted to. But now there's more people like me cycling in cities, on these broad roadways built largely for cars. You have this unfortunate position where what is supposedly a restorative activity is actually quite stressful. That might be the beginnings of cycle rage. The feeling that you should be allowed to have a nice, civil, gentle time because that's what the bike is made for. But instead, you're having to make your way past white van men and beware of unconscious pedestrians if you're going to get anywhere. As a cyclist myself, I am prone to the odd moment of rage, I confess. Indeed, that might be why I've been given this microphone. But to be fair, I haven't had a fight with anybody on the street. Not for about a year, since some cycle courier type got in a verbal argument with me about who gets right away at a roundabout. 
He ended up chucking his light frame single speed bike at my head. It missed. He wasn't as good at throwing his bike as he thought he was. Talking to me? Shut your fucking mouth. Yeah, yeah, of course I will. Ah, there we go. An actual piece of rage. There was a guy on a racer, a lot slimmer than my bike, had been ahead of me, I overtook him. And then he decided, as is quite often the way, when you get overtaken, you feel insulted and it's your, your pride and your manliness at stake. So he then got right up on my ass, right up to my back wheel, followed me for about 400 yards. Now then we get to a mini roundabout, which two cars are having a face off, not entirely sure what they want to do, not entirely sure who gets uh, priority from the right. And so I wait for them to sort it momentarily. I see they're not going to sort it, I go. After I've gone, the guy behind me shouts, go on, fucking move it. I reply, and I'm pretty sure you did hear all of that, he invited me to a fight, but he was about 25 times my body mass and uh, looked like he was familiar with the practice of imbibing steroids. We asked Mark Ames of the iBike London blog for his thoughts on bike rage. Here he is in conversation with James Randerson. I think, you know, when you're on a bicycle, you are exposed, not just to the elements and the, the cars around you, but also because you're on a bike, perhaps there's this idea that, you know, people in cars who are so protected by, you know, the mechanics of the vehicle are only looking for other car drivers, perhaps. So, you know, there, there are so many instances where it feels like drivers just, you know, look but fail to see and almost try and drive through you. And, and you're furious with their inattentiveness, but they're sort of quite surprised that, you're angry at all because they didn't even see you there in the first place. And I, I often think it's all about the reaction of the driver because almost always it's someone who, through inattentiveness or, or simply because you're less visible on the road than most vehicles, they just don't see you. And Yeah, I think the majority of the times, if it happens, a, a driver will say, sorry, mate, I didn't see you, and, and you just sort of shrug your shoulders and cycle on, and it diffuses the situation by them apologising. When it's more aggressive than that, when they're perhaps intentionally trying to bully you off the road, your blood does boil because, you're right, you're so much more exposed, and if someone's doing that on purpose, maybe they don't realise just how serious the potential of their actions could be. One thing that some people try, and, and we're, we're actually testing out on the, for, for some future bike blogs, is put camera on your head so that you can record your experiences as, as things happen. And, you know, so any bad behaviour you can record and, you know, if necessary, use it against the person who is uh, being nasty to you. I mean, so far I've, I've been commuting a bit with, it, with the camera on my head and, and nothing bad has happened. I don't know whether people can see the camera and they're very well behaved, but have you tried anything like that? I personally haven't. I have my own issues with driving around with a camera. I think that cycling in an ideal world is based on trust and literally sharing the road. And I don't kind of want to contribute to that sort mm. of surveillance state kind of well, feeling. Perspective, yeah. But in the same breath, just last week, there was the first successful prosecution in a court of a driver who threw a bottle at a cyclist who was filming it all with their helmet camera. For, for a case to usually go to court, you have to have an independent witness to the event and that's not always possible when you're zipping down the road at 20 miles an hour and the camera becomes that witness. What's interesting is that I do have a friend who uses one and when they 
recorded their first commute to work and then watched it back, they were horrified to find how they acted when they were cycling. It was like that when they were riding, they were kind of in a cycling zone. And when they watched it back, you know, sitting at home with their feet up and a cup of tea, they, they, they couldn't understand who this person was who was screaming and shouting as they tore down the Pentonville Road. Oh, Mark Ames of iBike London, thank you very much. Thank you. Now back to Paul McInnes on his bike. A cyclist is always facing a fight between the id and the superego. The superego is the side that says, this is a good thing for my body, for the environment. The id is saying, go faster. Don't let anyone beat me to the office. Cyclists always face this dilemma, justifying their bad behaviour by higher moral yearnings. And you get the other people who become self-loathing cyclists, diligently sitting at red lights all the time. They must think of going through, but they never do because they don't want to contribute to that idea of cyclists being aggressive and confrontational. I salute these people, but I could never become one of them. So, I confess, I have had moments of rage on a bike. I remain concerned that it's unavoidable, particularly in urban areas, but I aspire to be better than that. That was Paul McInnes. Andrew Ritchie founded Brompton Bicycle in 1976 while he was working as a gardener. His pioneering design for a folding bike is now exported around the world, but the bikes are still made in Brentwood in Essex. It's a hugely successful business, selling over 20,000 bikes a year and employs over 100 people. This poses a challenge for Andrew Ritchie, who likes to keep an eye on every stage of the production process, even though the bike has about 1,200 separate parts, many of which are made by hand we decided to find out just how well he knows his own invention. Hello, I'm Andrew Ritchie. I design the Brompton bike, and I've been given a list of questions to answer. I haven't read them yet, but here goes. I shall read them out. What is the fastest speed a Brompton has ever done? Gosh, I haven't a clue. I should think 60, or maybe more like um, uh, 1,500 miles an hour in a Concorde or whatever. What are the ideal body proportions for a Brompton user? About five years ago, we made the bike a tiny bit bigger, and that might have helped the big folk in the Netherlands and who are growing with every generation taller and um, broader. Uh, but of course, it won't suit everybody who's quite small. And we've had one or two people mention that they can't reach the handlebars as easily as they used to be able to. There we go, we can't please everybody. And of course, there's plenty of adjustment if they really want to do that. Another question How many parts are there in a Brompton? Well, again, I haven't a clue. I mean, if you count every last nipple and spoke and things, it goes into the thousands. Our list of bits that we buy, if you like, the range of different parts is probably about 300 if you include all the packaging and all the other bits and pieces. But actually, it's separate parts inside a Brompton, ball bearings, everything else. It must be two or three thousand. What's your dream for the Brompton? I'm working and I still have ideas to get it a bit more compact. I'd love it just to be a little bit smaller, a little bit lighter as well. Lightness is the difficult bit because one has to go to exotic and expensive materials. But technology is moving forward and we may well find something that would allow us to move away from some of the heavier parts, but it'll just be a slow erosion of weight. It won't be a huge change overnight. So those two things, really, just to make it more something that is a pocket bicycle. We'll never literally get to a pocket bicycle, but we have to live with that. Next question. What's the most expensive Brompton model? I can tell you that you could spend £1,500 if you wanted to and had all the extra bags and luggage on it. And that would be an all-singing, all-dancing one with the front hub dynamo made by Son, which is very expensive but lovely. All the front luggage, 
any other widgets and extras and extra paint charges, you could probably get up to £1,600. So, so, and I think one or two people do spend that sort of money. But you still get your money back on Brompton eventually because you save all those fares. Now, this is the final question. What's your favourite Brompton add-on? If, if you could make any accessory for Brompton, what would it be? Well, my favourite Brompton add-on is my handbag, which goes everywhere with me. It's got everything in it. It's got bits of toothpaste, and it gets stuck. It's got my wet weather gear, my diary, everything else. So that's the first thing, is my front luggage, which just plonks on the front of the bike. If I can make any accessory for Brompton, what would it be? I don't need sat-nav. I don't need in-car entertainment or on-bike entertainment particularly. Actually, that would be quite fun. If you want an answer, let's have something that I can quietly listen to the radio as I go along without any wires coming from it to my ears. I'm sure that's sort of something that technology could offer soon. Maybe we should get it for the Brompton users as well. That's the end of the list of questions. That was the founder of Brompton Bikes, Andrew Ritchie. And we end this month's podcast with the man who began our first edition last year, Sir Chris Hoy. He was in London for the recent Skyride event, which let loose 85,000 cyclists on a traffic-free route through the city. I started by asking him how the day job was going. At the moment, the the season is just about to start, and the the national championships in Manchester are in two weeks' time. I'll be riding the sprint, the queue, and the team sprint. Again, the same events I rode in Beijing, and that really signifies the start of my season. There's a race in Manchester about two weeks after that, and then there's the European Championships in November, and the European Championships will be the first qualifying event for the London Games so really the whole qualification process begins in earnest at the European Championships in November so that's why they're they're important and we're looking this year to try and get as many points as possible so we get the qualification in early and then in 2012 we don't have to travel all around the world to far-flung parts of the globe to pick up points um, because unfortunately we don't get a automatic entry into the Olympic Games you know we have to qualify even though we're the host nation we still have to qualify and and the biggest battle for me will be just fighting for places in the team because there's so much strength and depth. I know, so we've heard that the rules have changed, haven't they? There's only going to be one rider from each nationality allowed yeah. to do each event. What, who's, who's snapping at your well, heels? It's, it's, you know? it's frustrating. You know, These decisions come out of the blue and, and the governing body, the International Cycling Union, the UCI, they don't actually appear to have any consultation process with the people that it affects the most and that's the riders. So if you think to athletics, you know, you think about the the 100 metres, say they said, right, only one, right, one, one runner per nation, so only one Jamaican, only one American, the 100 metres final wouldn't be nearly as exciting as it would be otherwise. You know, think about the distance running, the Kenyans, the Ethiopians. If you said only one of those per nation, it would detract from the overall quality of the field, and, and they've done that in cycling, which to me, it's, it's a real pity for the, the number two British rider, the number two French rider, the number two German rider. These are guys who could be world medalists in their own right, but they won't actually be able to compete at the Olympic Games because they're number two in their nation. And for me, it's it's crazy. You know, you think back to Beijing, a gold and silver in my event in the sprint, a gold and silver in the Kieran, which won as well. So the chance of having that rematch with Jason Kenny in the sprint final will never happen. And, um, you know, it's it's, it's very difficult. Yeah, so well, Rebecca Romero went yeah, to Hoovenagel. Exactly. They had a you know, one it, two, didn't they? It, it sometimes feels as if, you know, they're plotting against the British team to stop us from winning lots of medals. I mean, but, they are. You know, it's definitely an anti-British <laughs> thing, isn't it? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's about they're trying to see a greater share of the medals across the boards. I don't think it's necessarily anti-British, but certainly maybe they're hoping that the, the medals are, are spread out more evenly amongst all the nations around the world. But ultimately, the Olympics should be, or I believe it should be, about the best of the best. It's about the pinnacle of athletic performance. And if it happens that two of the gold medalists, or two of the, the medalists on the podium are from the same country, then I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Mm. It's frustrating, but ultimately, 
as I say, so now the battle is to beat my teammates to get that number one slot so that I'm the one that, that represents Britain in London. And is that leading to more rivalry rather than camaraderie among you if you're all fighting? Well, it, it may change as we get closer to the, the crunch time, but at the moment it's it's been fantastic. You know, the, the guys are so, we're all very supportive of each other and we actually get on really well. And I think we're professional enough to know that um, when you sling your leg over the bike and you get on the start line, that's when the friendships end and you're, you're racing, you know, in earnest. But until that point, all you do is you train the best you can and we actually feed off each other's, you know, sort of competitive instincts. So in training, it feels almost as though you're competing against your teammates. So you can come in, have a look at what they did, you know, the time-wise, and you go up and try and beat that. And it, it just it pushes everybody on. So I think the standard in the British team is raised because of the competition that we've got. Mm. I spoke to Rebecca Miramiro a few months ago, and she's still pretty bitter about the fact that her events have been axed. What do you think about that? And was there ever any danger that you would end up in a similar position, or is it? Just well, well I was in that position after Athens. You know, I won the gold medal in the kilometre time course, trial, yeah. and um, a year after the Olympics, it was dropped, and it's shattering. You know, it really it's. Well, it's, I don't know, it's like saying to Usain Bolt, sorry, there's no 100 metres in this year's Olympics. And, you know, the, the, the event I did in Athens, that was one of the, the Blue Ribbon events, as was the pursuit, which has gone. So we lost Bradley Wiggins' chance to win or to retain his title, chance for Rebecca Romero to retain her title. And, it, yeah, it, it does seem as though the people that are in charge of the sport aren't really meeting the, the wishes of the, the athletes themselves. And I can't see it... The reasons they're doing it for any real, po you know, obviously you want to get parity between the men's and women's events, but I think that other sports don't seem to have the same problem with losing events. They can add new events, like swimming, for example. You can they've added new events without taking out existing ones. So cycling, on the whole, suffers, I believe. But ultimately, you can stand and stamp your feet and shake your fists until you're blue in the face. But it, it makes it doesn't seem to make a blind bit of difference. So you have to just get on with the, the job at hand. And you know, the, the biggest thing that the frustration is when these decisions are, are given halfway through an Olympic cycle. So, you know, you've got guys, or like after Athens, you know, I'd been training for almost a year and a half when I found out that the event had gone. So you've wasted a year and a half of training down a specific avenue and you've got to change direction and go for something new. And for me, it worked out fine in Beijing. I was very lucky to have found two new events. But, you know, for Rebecca, she's, I don't know what she's 100% planning on right now. Yeah, I know. It was time, I think she was thinking about the road time trial last yeah. But she, was, she didn't seem at all certain. No, it's, it's you know, and, and two years from the games to still be not sure exactly what you're doing, it's, it's, it's not an, a nice position to be in. And do you ever regret choosing a sport that involves you just going round in a circle? I think track cycling, it's, it's like the purest form of cycling, really. It's distilled right down to, you know, you've got one, one gear, you've got no brakes. Um, it's really is man against man. You know, the, the machine is, is kind of the stripped down to the, the very basics. Um, and I'm a sprinter, so I, was, I would never have been a Tour de France rider, you know, it's, it literally is like a 100-metre sprinter compared to a marathon runner. I'm not, I'm not genetically made up to be going over long distance and certainly not made up to be going up big hills. So mm. um, the track was always something that appealed to me. And it's just it's the speed and the, the explosiveness of it and it's just the sheer kind of excitement when you watch a sprint event on the track. Um, it's that tension, that build-up, and then the explosion, it's, it's incredible. And how often do you, do you cycle for pleasure? Do you and your wife, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, she's actually out on the track just now. She's on the, on the loop just now. Um, she's borrowed one of these bikes behind me, and uh, she's, she's doing more cycling than I am today anyway. Um, but yeah, we, we, we cycle occasionally together, but um, usually on holiday. And I, I personally cycle... Uh, I always have, you know, recovery rides um, scheduled in my, my training week. So most days I'll be out for an hour on the bike, and that's not, you know, in addition to the track and the, and the gym, that's not a, a proper hard road ride. That's just a recovery ride. We call them recovery rides, and in a way, it's as much to, to flush out all the toxins and sort of um, either prepare you for the upcoming training session or cool you down from the, the previous one. But you also 
don't then associate your bike with pain because otherwise if all you did was train flat out every second of the time you're on the bike then you begin to resent the bike whereas if you have recovery rides in there a chance to just go for a spin then you, you kind of you still remember what you're why you started in the first place chris hoy at the skyride event in london well that's almost it for this month's show but before i go a quick plea Hearn Hill Velodrome in South London is once again under threat from developers. The outdoor racing track is the only surviving venue from not just the 1948 London Olympics, but also the 1908 Games too, and is famously where Bradley Wiggins cut his teeth. We'll be back with a full report next month, but in the meantime, check out www.savethevelodrome.com for more information. And remember to visit the bike blog for more news and views. I'm Helen Peard and the producer was Ian Chambers. Until next month, goodbye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.